Hey everybody, welcome to the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast brought to you by the Genetic Literacy Project. I'm your host, Cameron English. And I'm your co-host, Kevin Fulta, a professor who cares about science communication. This is the weekly show where we discuss the biggest stories from the Genetic Literacy Project to keep you informed about groundbreaking developments from the world of science and medicine, and of course, to help you separate facts from fallacies as you read the headlines. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Cameron and Kevin here, as always. It's another beautiful day. Kevin, how are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I am terrific. I've been following that glyphosate hashtag as we talked about last time. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Are the loonies out in force? No, it's, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I stepped on you there. What were you going to say about that? It's it's okay. I accept your apology. Um, You had actually jumped in the thread. I wasn't aware of this at the time, but somebody retweeted some study where they shoved poor rats full of this chemical again, and they said, oh, whoa, it causes insulin resistance or uh, high high blood sugar, excuse me, causes high blood sugar in rats. And, uh, you know, everyone's jumping in the comments and, oh, how terrible. We knew this stuff was bad. So I had to go find the paper because they only linked to the abstract (laughs) and that took a few minutes. So I go find the paper and it turns out they gave the rats like 400 milligrams of glyphosate per kilogram of body weight. And unless I'm mistaken, which is always possible here, the acceptable daily intake of glyphosate is 0.5 mg per kg. (laughs) Right. So, So I'm like, okay. You gave them hundreds of times what they're supposed to, you know, or what, what's acceptable for humans to have. And then you went, yeah, it caused all kinds of problems. It's like, well, yeah, duh. <laughs> anyway. Right. Yeah. Well, you feed them, you feed them way more than the, the level that's been determined to be the absolute worst case with a very conservative buffer. Yeah. And then, yeah, so it's, it's why we have regulations. It's why we have rules. And the best part, the thing that I've been doing lately, that's kind of fun. And maybe I shouldn't talk about my secret here, but when someone makes claims about a paper, I say, you know, I, I can't get that one. It's behind a paywall. Could you send me your copy? <laughs> <laughs> and, and usually you hear <laughs> nothing you, you, because they can't, they don't, they're not, using the paper and looking at the data. Yeah. And today there was somebody who, you know, it's so funny because if you talk about what was done in the, uh, like glyphosate in breast milk, for instance, he'll say, Oh, it's in breast milk. And you go, no, it hasn't not in breast milk. It's not found there. The test was the wrong test. He'll say, Oh yeah, well look at this. And he'll put up the, uh, self-published website by Zen Honeycutt and moms across uh. America from 2014. <laughs> and then I'll put up the one from Shelly McGuire and at, at Washington state and the other one from Germany where they used LCMS and showed it wasn't there. They did it right. And it's not there. And he will dig in his heels by the non peer reviewed piece of crap, uh, Eliza based background noise report and refuse to look at the stuff done by real scientists. And it just really reinforces how powerful the narrative is and adhering to the narrative at all costs. And that when confronted with data, it doesn't cause somebody to humbly go, okay, I guess I see where you're coming from. It causes them to dig in deeper mm-hmm. and say, well, you're, you, you just work for those companies anyway. So how would you know? You know yeah. So it, it's, it's really been an interesting example of how the psychology works around glyphosate. Yeah. There was one other example. So I guess Joe Rogan took a swing at you and some other people about being Monsanto shills. And he cited the Kara Gillum article from the guardian about uh, glyphosate in urine. So I retweeted 
someone's retweet of his po of his episode. And I said, it just means your kidneys work. Big deal. Get over it. Right. And someone posted a link to a study and it was Michael Antonio and Robin Messnage. And they said, yeah, but it's still bad for this chemical to be in your pee. And I went and looked at the paper. They used the same uh, rats that yeah. that Sarah Laney had used, which means yes. that they were carrying tumors while you're looking at uh, their kidney and liver function, which means the study is bullshit. It, you know, I, I just don't know. Anyways, I'm, <laughs> yes. I saw... That's all. I'm sorry. They got a lot of mileage out of those rats. Oh, they, 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 they created these rats. They let them live way longer than they were supposed to. Then they biopsied them and did gene expression studies and, and all these other studies, well, a few other studies off of them. And yeah, you're showing me the, the gene expression profile of animals that are, that should be, should have been sacrificed months ago, euthanized because they're debilitated with gigantic tumors. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is a, I mean, you know, I mean, for us to sit here 10 years after the Seralini paper and say it was a disaster. Well, you know, it, look at the reverberations it continues to cause. Yeah. Yeah. F final thought. I'm sorry. I got on a rant here, but all the male rats in the study died. <laughs> so, so they, they talk about this in the paper, Antonio and his colleagues, and they're like, yeah, all the male rats died. And you know, that's not helpful. So anyways, we went on with the female rats. I'm like, wait, 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 let's go back. Like, how is it that this, this realistic amount of glyphosate killed half the population of rats in your study, but only the male ones? What's you, like, there's anyway. So I asked the guy who posted it. I said, Hey, that's a really interesting paper. What did you take away from this? Why are the results significant? Never heard back. Yeah. So at, at minimum, it will make someone stop talking. <laughs> it's interesting, you know, and what we, you know, aside from the fact that it borderlines on unethical, it would be interesting to create a number of headlines just to create them and see how far they travel, you know, put an account up with some headlines that are, that are just completely, because people read a headline, maybe look at an abstract and then, uh, you know, they look at a journal article title, maybe look at an, uh, an abstract and then retweet it and make conclusions from it without even understanding it. And this guy who's been dealing with me, it's like, can you tell me? He'll say, well, what do you think it is paper? He said, blah, blah, blah. He said, well, yeah, but I got to know the dose. I got to know the duration. I got to know the type of animal model. I got to know what they ate. I got to know what they drank. I got to know all the other details. And he doesn't have those. And <laughs> it's so it's it really is a it's a really weird time to be in the area of, uh, of refereeing science. But this is where we are. And it's important we keep getting into these conversations and holding people accountable for the misinformation. Mm-hmm. Well, we've said enough, so we'll move on to our stories now. Yes. So first up, reversible gene editing technique may be safer and more reliable than standard CRISPR. Next, the chemistry of vision, reviving eyes from organ donors, offers hope for blindness cures. And finally, do sex and romance drive our artistic and athletic abilities? Intriguing, Kevin. But first up, let's talk about uh, this new gene editing technique, newfangled gene editing. Yeah, well, it, it's kind of gene editing, but it doesn't work on the gene. So genes themselves are nothing more than the information for a given protein or catalytic RNA or endpoint product, let's just say that way, with its regulatory components. And that's what really comprises of gene. In CRISPR-Cas9, or using the traditional Cas9 system, we can take a give that enzyme, which does a little bit of local cutting, a little piece of RNA, a little piece of instruction that says, go here, here's where to cut. 
and it will use that little piece of RNA called a guide RNA to target a specific precise location. That's why it's so cool. Cas13 is another type of molecular scissors. The difference is, is that this one works on RNA. And so it allows you to go to the intermediate in the central dogma of molecular biology. So you have a you have the DNA, which gives rise to RNA, which carries the information to the uh, cytoplasm in a eukaryote or in a you know thing with a nucleus, like animals, plants, fungi, fungi, and uh, and then is translated into a protein. That's where the information goes through those two different steps: DNA and RNA, and eventually protein. And uh, the Cas13, instead of targeting DNA in the blueprint, it targets the RNA, this intermediate, which is much safer in a way, I guess, um, because you're not changing the genetics. You're not changing the inherited part. You're changing the transient molecules which are carrying that information. The problem is, is that the Cas13 is a little sloppy and indiscriminate, and it tends to take apart everything uh, including uh, non-target RNAs. So what this group has done is some mutagenesis, which means you're introducing mutations into Cas13, and then screening jillions of different Cas13s with changes to find ones that are better on the specific target. And this seems to be a really nice technology, especially just for research, especially in single-celled organisms. So a couple questions come to mind as I'm hearing you speak, has this been oversold in any way? I, I sort of got that impression from the article, which was in the, the South China Post, I think was the original source of that. Because um, it seems like, they're, they didn't say CRISPR-Cas9 was dangerous, but they sort of implied that there's, there's some you know, lack of control that people have with this technology. But with this one, it's like super duper extra control. And in reality, CRISPR-Cas9 is quite safe especially when you're dealing with food. Cause like with plants, you're going to, you're still going to do field trials. You're still going to have to show that it's substantially equivalent to what's already on the market. Um, so, so what are your thoughts on that? No, you're exactly right. With CRISPR Cas9, you can do gene edits and then you can sequence the genome and see the edits you did and see if they were in the correct place. And if there were any off target effects with this other one, it's targeting the intermediate. It's targeting the RNA. So it's hard to tell, at least at this point, if this is a effective tool. And I think that the article that it originally came from in Nature Biotechnology really says that there's different variants of Cas13, which vary in their specificity and off-target effects. And that's a really powerful thing in some contexts. It's not going to change the world. It's not going to uh, affect you know medicine immediately but what it can do is uh, help us understand gene function in specific organisms can we instead of changing the blueprint of dna change the outprint of the blueprint or the ability of that information in the blueprint to really uh, be reach, reach its application and i think this has a lot of very niche and boutique applications that are really cool the reason i like this paper for this audience is because it says that cas9 which is the uh, gene editing function that yeah this is one step in a panoply of of enzymes which can do different things and this cas13 is another trick with now rna editing uh, could be extremely powerful and, and do some really cool stuff down the road 
Yeah, this is how progress is made, even if it is a, a, a relatively small step. I, I also saw some comments in the story about how intellectual property has sort of locked up what researchers can do. So I'm wondering how much of this line of research is driven by the fact that they just can't use the other technologies that are more well-known and, and more popular because they've already been patented. What do you think about that? Yeah, I don't know that that stops research so much because lots of people are using Cas9 and that cat is kind of out of the bag. But you, if you want to get to a product that is commercialized, now you have to start dealing with, uh, you know, the patents and all the other goodies that come along with that. Uh, at least at this point, Cas13 appears to be a way around that if you needed to say so. It allows you to suppress the gene, not at the DNA level, but suppress the gene at the RNA level. So it's a little different, still get the same outcome at the end of the day, which is shutting down that gene. Well, we'll see where it goes. You never know. Maybe it'll be the next big thing in 10 years or whatever. But until then, Kevin, um, eye transplants from uh, the deceased. What's going on here? <laughs> uh, this is a study by Ron Winslow from the Wall Street Journal. And this was kind of interesting because one of the big hurdles to really understanding blindness, especially issues like macular degeneration, age-related macular degeneration, other uh, effects on the eyes, is that it's really difficult to work on eyes in a laboratory situation. And especially if you start getting into uh, concepts like testing for therapies, things like that, it is almost impossible to do that work. And we know that uh, age-related macular degeneration is an increasing problem uh, with an aging population. You know that there's um, all kinds of issues related with diabetes. And the part, hard part is you can't do a lot of this work in mice, which are a great model for many things we use, because they don't have a macula. They don't have the uh, layer of uh, 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 retinal pigmented epithelium, which we've talked about before a long time ago, uh, this layer of the uh, back of the eye, which is light sensitive. And this is the layer that contains the cones that we use for color vision. And we, um, we talked a while ago about this in restoring vision using gene therapy. And, and, and this is where those things are targeted. So without being able to study this unique area of, of the human physiology, which is directly tied in with the central nervous system. And see, actually part of the central nervous system, technically, um, is researchers have been kind of up to creek. They've been able to do things like transplant corneas, that kind of thing, because that's not a blood-rich part of the eye. And someone dies, you can take the corneas and use them again for whatever. But the uh, parts of the eye associated with the retina usually were... Uh, DOA uh, shortly after death. So this whole article goes into some of the steps that have been made in order to be able to preserve those tissues in the hopes of doing more research and maybe even restoring vision to people that have lost it. I'm wondering if you can comment on, on how they actually do the preservation. Cause that was really interesting, but the story didn't spend much time on it. It's just this very brief quote. So they say, uh, the researchers built a container akin to the coolers transplant surgeons use to transplant organs recovered from donors. The container is equipped with tiny tanks, <clears throat> which the researchers usually fill at a scuba dive shop to provide oxygen to the donor eyes. The eyes are also bathed in a cocktail of nutrients designed to normalize acidity and wake up the retinal cells 
and restore their function. I just think that's hilarious because it's so casual. And there's like, like when you think of science, it's like, oh, there's this special lab and, you know, you can't breathe wrong in there, but they're, you know, like, oh, we go to a scuba shop. And <laughs> so talk, <laughs> talk about the, without getting too technical, but just talk about, you know, the process here. Well, I think it really boils down to these are highly metabolically active uh, cells. And the process of light sensing and and vision itself is so, um, I I guess you would say, uh, well, it's extremely rapid, but extremely expensive metabolically. And the amount of stuff you need to continue to make this happen uh, is is pretty heavy duty. So the everything from chromophores, so the vitamin A derivatives that bind the specific uh, uh, that are converted to specific substrates that bind specific proteins where the photons are uh, sensed. There's uh, calcium uh, cyclic AMP uh, gated channels. There's all kinds of stuff that happens inside a light signaling cascade. So there's a lot of um, things going on here, even if you have them in the dark. This tissue is extremely sensitive and chemically uh, dependent upon a certain homeostasis. And what they've figured out is that if you can keep these cells alive by giving them oxygen, and which is weird because I don't know too many dive shops that have oxygen. Uh, you know, the, you, you have compressed air usually, not necessarily pure oxygen, maybe heliox for people who are going super deep. But that's a whole, let's not talk diving. Um, uh, but uh, that plus maintaining the proper pH those are critical steps in maintaining those tissues. So this little cooler with the uh, eyeballs bathed in these solutions allows researchers to receive eyes that are functioning and those tissues are still good for a while. They find that if they get them uh, within uh, 60 minutes of, of death, that they're do- that you can put them into this kind of preservation and now have eyeballs that are still functioning that you can use for meaningful research. It's impressive stuff. I, I'm really curious to see where this goes. And and they were cautious. And I really appreciate this when reporters do this. But they quoted one of the, the scientists. And she said, look, slow your roll. We're a long way away from this. This is like step one out of 50. Or, you know what I mean? She, she, I think she put it in context appropriately, yeah. which was awesome. I, th- my final question, though, is you know, I know this isn't your field, Kevin. But if you're doing a study like this, like you pluck out some brain dead guy's eyeballs and you got them in this cooler, and then you go to a, an institutional review board, and you're like, okay, so Bob died an hour ago, and he's okay with us experimenting on his eyes. Do you have any idea what sort of potential objections you might have to deal with or considerations you might have to have in mind before you go forward with research like this? Well, see, that's all done ahead of time, and you get IRB approval long before you're harvesting eyeballs. Uh, you get the uh, you get consent forms, you get all that stuff together, and all of that can be executed by anyone with power of attorney or the patient themselves. That upon death they could uh, relinquish their their peepers. <laughs> um, I, I don't know any uh, I, I don't know of any particular restrictions other than that's the normal way in which these things are done. Okay. So, yeah, that's, but it, it's, it's a breakthrough for people who study these things because now they actually have something to study. And that's always probably been a frustration for um, folks like the researchers in this article. You can't actually do it because you didn't have a way to get it done. Now you have this way to be able to finally poke around inside an eyeball that still is doing what eyeballs do in a metabolically uh, stable and uh, basically functioning context. 
Wow. That's all I got. Wow. Just, it's, it's progress of some sort, you know, I mean, it's not every day you read about eyeball transplants. Okay. Uh, Kevin from the captain obvious file, this third, this third, uh, story, sex and romance drive our artistic and athletic abilities. Yeah. This is kind of a, a funny story because I, I was looking at this f- for a few reasons, but basically, uh, as confirmed by the study in frontiers of psychology and was reported by, uh, uh, IED news desk at the University of Sao Paulo, uh, sex and drugs, sex and drugs, sex and romance, <laughs> and drugs, that too. <laughs> uh, um, drive our artistic uh, intro. So are driven by uh, art- artistry and athleticism. So it turns out that when you look across biology, and this was stuff Darwin figured out, you either have a bunch of sexual carrots and sticks. You have things like the plumage of a peacock that says, hey, look at me, here's something to mate with. And then other things that say, um, uh, you know, here's some horns or uh, poison or whatever that says, don't screw at me, leave me alone. And these things are used either to attract a mate or fight for a mate, that kind of thing. And so the question is, are these things real and do they exist in human populations today. And there's really just a set of surveys that if you asked large groups of people uh, to talk about their talents and their expertise and, you know, what, what, how they, uh, their skills, the things they do in um, art or music or whatever, and then uh, talk about their potential partners. They basically, it's not a big surprise, as you mentioned, that, um, that, that women find men who uh, that, that women are using these kinds of uh, artistic gifts as ways to attract mates. So they're using, uh, you know, uh, music or their music ability or art or whatever to be able to attract mates. Um, men also do this, but they also, uh, they also have, uh, they use arts more as a weapon as well, I guess, or, or at least that's what the synthesis of this thing says that men are um, more competitive with men using athleticism, um, but are also using athletic skills to attract women. So women may be a little bit more um, reliant on the artsy side to, uh, to attract a mate, but it, that was, it, as you say, it comes from the duh file um, that, but what makes it interesting is that it really does tie in with what Darwin suggested a long time ago. And, and, you know, that was a little harsh of me, but I think it's true because when you look at I mean, you can look at it on an evolutionary time scale or perspective, but if you just look at it logically, we have to have some basis by which we figure out who we want as a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever. Right. You know, you don't just kind of look around like, ah, you'll do fine. Let's, let's go that, you know, so this makes sense. And I think everybody sort of intuitively gets this. And, and this reminded me of <laughs> a few weeks ago, I was going through old pictures of myself before I'd lost weight. And, uh, I, sh- <laughs> I showed them to my wife and I was like, you know, if we met five years earlier, you could have had all that. And she just looked at me just straight faced and goes, I wouldn't have wanted it. (laughs) (laughs) And I just laughed because it's hilarious because it's like this cold truth that we don't like to talk about, you know, but by the time we had met, I had lost weight. I was going to the gym. So, you know, I was more athletic and uh, it it makes sense, you know, and the same thing as a musician, I've noticed that playing in bands tends to up 
uh, I don't know what the correct term is, your marketability, you know, to the, to the opposite sex. It's just fascinating, you know, that we can see these dynamics in real life, but when you look at it in a, in an academic context, it, it, it just seems so obvious that you're like, well, yeah, thank you. <laughs> you're exactly right though. And that's where this study, you know, kind of boggles my mind in that it, that certain things do attract the opposite sex. And I think that, uh, that artistry and that kind of thing does. I mean, look at, there's so many dudes <laughs> who are like the, you know, skinny, weird little art dudes who, you know, who, who, who get plenty of attention from the, from the ladies, who, you know, I mean, look at freaking Prince. I mean, what, what's he got going on? He's like four feet tall and, and or he's dead now, isn't he? Yeah, he died. Yeah. He, you know, but guys like, you know, they, they don't seem like, you know, the kind of uh, folks who would seem like a good mate either, but yet they seem attractive to females. And, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and, and let me, you know, let me tell you, uh, you know, being a scientist and I, and I, <laughs> you know, have, being a scientist in a quarter, get you a good cup of coffee. That's about it. And it doesn't even, you know, you get called a shill. You don't get, you know, women hanging around your, you know, it didn't work for me through high school. <laughs> I got AP physics. <laughs> you know, <laughs> guess what that got me? But but you know, guys who are on the football team or whatever, you know, that, that, that you know, reliance on athleticism uh, seem to be more productive in those arenas. Um, but who's laughing now? <laughs> <laughs> hey, baby, you want to talk about program cell death? Like, I, that's not going to really fly. I don't think. Like no, I don't think, I, but, but there, there is that interesting and, and maybe that's the follow up to this kind of thing is that whereas these ornaments of uh, either uh, artistry or uh, athleticism can serve as ornaments or, or whatever for attracting mates, um, at least the reality in, in the real world is, is that the geeks that um, were shunned early on become much more attractive as, as time goes on because of their uh, likelihood of employment and being good providers. And yeah. They, I think that that's terribly true. I think that, that those, that research has been done. So this is one little microcosm of Darwin's work um, that relates to that. Um, this modern work that relates to what Darwin observed. Yeah. I've, I've seen some interesting studies in the same vein, but the, the design is a little bit better. So there's some where they will actually monitor people in real time like at a bar, I've seen that, that kind of work done. And then I've seen different things where you're basically trying to observe people in the real world as closely as you can. Um, cause that, I think that's, it's harder to do, but it's easier to replicate in that it's real research. Um, and I, I haven't read this original paper to be, to be clear about that, but I, I'm wondering if it's not necessarily that you're artistic and chicks dig the artistic type. I mean, they do, but I think it sort of signals that like, oh, you're interesting. You can hold a crowd. Oh, you have some social value because of this thing that you do. And I, I, I would bet that that's what's going on. It's not, it's not that we're particularly interested always in, you know, oh, you throw the football so well, or, oh, you're such a great painter or whatever, but it's, it's, it's a signal that you're worth having children with, or you're worth, you know what I mean? That's, that's the impression I get from this. Yeah. You got some value mm -hmm. and, and, and that may be what's attractive, but you know, there's the whole other physical attributes and things that, you know, different people are attracted to different stuff. And it, it's, it, 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 I think it's a much more complex thing than they make it out to be in this particular article, but it does say that these uh, artistic and uh, 
other edges certainly do play a role. And at least based on surveys of Brazilians. Right. For an artist, go to Brazil. (laughs) Be careful talking about physical attraction. You might get a warning on your on your tweets because people don't like that these days. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. Who are you following on Twitter, Kevin? I'm following Jonathan Jerry. Uh, Jonathan works with the uh, McGill university office of science and society with Joe Schwartz. And Jonathan's just always had good stuff. His, his tweets are great. He has an excellent podcast and um called body of evidence where he participates and uh and uh he can be found at cracked science c-r-a-c-k-e-d science who are you following i'm following dr buzz hollander he's a contributor to real clear science and he has a stack exchange blog and uh he's he's really interesting in that he's a practicing physician because a lot of people we talk about, they work at a university or they've, they've dedicated themselves full-time to science communication. Um, but this guy is actually running a family practice and his writing is interesting in that I, I get the sense that he actually sits down and he analyzes the subject and he, he gives careful weight to the different aspects of an argument. And I really learn a lot from reading, reading his stuff. Even when I don't agree with this conclusion, I go through it and I go, you know, I can appreciate what he said. So he is at Buzz, B-U-Z-Z. Hollander MD at Buzz Hollander MD on Twitter. You can follow us as well at Kevin Folta on Twitter at ACSH org on Twitter for my writing and then follow genetic literacy project as well. They're just at genetic literacy and genetic literacy Thank you all so much for listening and we will see you next week.